Yeah, got to run. How are you guys doing? Good? Some still horrible, but way better than the 11 o'clock or the 9 o'clock. The 9 o'clock was just like, ah. Oh. And then I was like, well, I just got back from Haiti, and so mm, I'm not tired. So you jerks. Uh, no, God, great way to start a sermon. If you're new, I'm sorry. Just there's two other churches right over there. They're probably way better than here. <laughs> Can you scratch all that from the recording? He's like fake doing it. We don't have a recording. Um, anyways, welcome. <laughs> I'm Grant. I'm the campus pastor here. And uh, honestly, I'm excited to dive into God's word. I, I did just get back from Haiti. And yes, yes, there's a couple Haitians in here. Como ye, tu I'm from, oh wow, there's more than, I didn't know you were from Haiti. Welcome. There's a lot of Haitians here. They kind of come out from everywhere. You know how they are. Uh, if you're Haitian, you get that. If you don't, you're racist. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> This is not starting out well. <laughs> Anyways, I just got back from Haiti. Um, don't talk to me anymore. Uh, I just got back from Haiti, and, and it, was a, it was a great trip. I lived there for four years, um, and I'm always praying and processing with God. God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want me to, to learn? And I was looking and just processing through this, and um, I got there, and you know, I got with a couple of Americans, and they're like, bug-eyed, and I'm like, I got this, I speak the language, you know, I know what that is, I know what this is, and they're like looking at me like I'm a hero, and I am, but it's not a big deal, but it's, you know, and I'm just trying to help them understand and all these things, and I was there for a couple days, and it was just warming my heart, and I was processing as, uh, even last night, um, I guess I had a dream about it, but waking up, I was just processing, man, what is this like, and I realized that I was content. And not in a good way. We're going to talk about what it means to be content in a good way during the sermon. But I was content in a really bad way. The, 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 pop, the poverty, the injustice, the life of the Haitians didn't affect me as it used to. It didn't affect me the same way as when I went there the first time. But the children with red hair, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that. Why do they have red hair? Oh, because they're malnourished. I know that because I'm smart. I've seen that in clinic a hundred times. Or, oh, yeah, that, that little house that's falling apart with 15 people in it. No big deal. I've been there, done that. You know, and I realized in my heart that I was struggling. And I asked God, not because I want it, because I don't. But I asked God, what does it look like for me to hurt again? What does it look like for me to care again? What does it look for me not to be content in the reality of what's going on or the injustices in this world, but rather what does it look like for me to be content in Jesus Christ and to hurt for the things that are hurting him and to hurt for the things that are breaking this world. And it just, ah, man, it really kind of wrecked me. I've been to Haiti probably 30 times and this trip was kind of just a reawakening in my soul to say, God, I want to hurt again. I want to hurt. And it's the same for us. How many of us have walked around and how many homeless people have we seen this morning? How many people have we seen struggling this morning? How many of us, oh man, an, uh, another shooting. And, you know, I, and I'm not trying to make light of the shooting. Please don't hear that. But it, unless it's more than like three or four people, we never even see it on the news anymore. We just become so content in our culture. When have we even looked at anything about the injustices and inequalities in our culture with race and with, with different gender, all these different things, we, they're not on the news. They're not in our reality anymore. And me coming back from Haiti, it kind of opened my eyes to say, God, I want to hurt again for the things that are hurting you. And, and sorry, this has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to tell you, just kind of process with you for a second what God's doing in my heart. I mean, I just got back last night or night before. So I just thank you for letting me process. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> thank you for giving me a place to rant. 
Lord, I, I want to hurt again, and I want our congregation to hurt for the things that are broken in this world. Lord, I believe as we process and speak through this sermon that you'll be able to see where we're not content and what our not being content in what you've given us has created a huge issues and ramifications in our culture. That the injustices in a lot of different way, they're a struggle. Lord, help us to be content in you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, buckle your seatbelts. Next five weeks we're talking about finances. I know you love it, and I love it too, because that's what we're going to do. I don't get it. I mean, I do get it because I hate it for myself, but like, I don't get it. Like, why are we so, it's such a struggle for us to talk about finances. I talk about adultery or pornography or infidelity or pride, and you guys are like, yeah, that was a great sermon. But then when I start touching on finances, it's a huge struggle. And I think the reason, because it is, it is a struggle, because it's money, and money does things, and it does things to us, and it does things for us. And the more we have of it, the more power we have and all these different things. I mean, I struggle with myself. Why do I not want to talk about this? It's because I'm in debt. And I don't want to talk about being in debt because then it's like, I got to listen to this stuff too. And I think it's the same for all of us. So I want us to just, hey, I'm in this with you. You're in this with me. Let's process this together. Um, We're in this nine-week Financial Peace University study with our church. There's about 4,500 adults in the Savannah area doing it. From our campus, there's about 200, 250, which is like 80% of the adults in in our congregation. Just for, this could backfire. Who's doing FBU or has done FBU in our congregation? That's about 80%. Don't look around. All right. Uh, (laughs) All of you didn't raise your hand. I don't know why you didn't sign up. Uh, Anyways, but it's going well so far. Uh, you know, the normal for us in America means that we're broke and then we're going to loan money and we're going to be in debt for the rest of our life. But so far, um, this is our progress. We paid off a total. Now, let me back up. This isn't on here, but I'll tell you this. As a church, we're in about $67 million of debt, consumer debt as a congregation. Not you guys down here. That'd be awesome. Uh, crazy. But as a church overall. And we have $22 million in liquid assets. So that's pretty good, except for... 50 people in our church own $17 million of those assets, of the liquid assets, the liquid cash, which is crazy. So we're actually in a lot more debt than we think, and we have like a billion credit cards. Crazy, crazy craziness, and we're trying to get out of that so we're not slaves to debt anymore. So this is where we're at as of four weeks. We've paid off $1,082,155.45 worth of debt. That's a low estimate. We've saved $350,000 so far as a group of people, and we have cut up or canceled 263 credit cards. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. I know numbers don't sound like a lot, but let me translate this for you. This is, I mean, this is crazy. It's $4,000 to build a well in Haiti. We could, we could build almost... N- 60, 70 wells in Haiti for clean water. Um, the, it cost $1,000 to do a home study for foster care. There's 463 kids in foster care in Chatham County. We could almost pay for every family that wants to do or foster a child to do it. We could eradicate foster care in Chatham County. Like, this is just four weeks. Imagine what happens in a year or six weeks. This is the reason we're doing these things. The reason we're doing these things is so that we are no longer slaves to debt. I was thinking and processing this earlier. I'll save it. No, I'm not going to save it. How many of us, this is just a gut check. How many of us pay more in interest than we do tithe? 
No judgment, I'm just saying, how much of us are paying more in interest than we do when we tithe? How much are we paying to lenders rather than to the church? Or, or to any generous place you want to give? Just process that in your own heart. That's a, that's a gut check. So this is just where we are right now. So the next five weeks we're going to talk about and dig into five characteristics of what it means to be kind of a healthy church that walking in financial peace. So here are the five things. So one, and then what we're talking about uh, this morning is trust, trusting God completely. What does it look like for us to trust God completely? Two, what does it look like to save money consistently? Three, recognize that God's owner of everything, the ownership of God, and what does it mean for us to embrace God's mission? And then finally, what does it mean to commit to lifelong generosity? So these are the five things that we're going to talk about over the next week. And, and what we're talking about today is what does it mean to trust God completely? And I believe that starts with contentment. It starts with us being content. Now, a lot of us, when we say, hey, who's content right now? I think a lot of people would raise their hands and I say, well, what's the definition of contentment? Well, I'm okay. I'm not drowning in debt or I'm not struggling right now. My car's running, all these different things. I don't, I don't need breaks until next week. I'm, I'm good. I, I'm, everything's okay. I'm doing fine. I'm not, I'm not drowning. I'm not dying. I'm okay. And we think that's what it means to be content. Gary Thomas wrote in his book, Authentic Faith, and he says contentment is soul rest. Your soul at peace. That if your soul is at peace, that that's what it means to be contentment. Well, I have a definition for contentment for us. It says, contentment is when you're at rest inside right now as things are. That you're okay with things as they are, meaning not that you need something. In other words, think of it this way. Contentment is when I don't feel that I must be, I must have these other things. That I feel at peace. I'm well right now, it is well with my soul. That if I have that or if I don't have that, I'm okay. That if I don't get that job, I'm okay. If I don't get that salary raise, I'm okay. If I don't get this job, I'm okay. If I don't get this new car, if I don't get this new thing, then I'm okay, I don't need that. But if you're restless, and a lot of us live in a state of restlessness, Restless because of something that we didn't get, a raise that didn't get, or, or something else. Restless because something that we want to buy, a new computer, a new car, or something you need to fix, or remodel a kitchen or a bathroom. Or Restless because they saw that someone else has something that you want. We're restless because we see that they have and we don't. And these are the things that steal our contentment. These are the things that steal our inside rest. These are the things that steal our joy. So let's talk about two of them. Stuff I feel I must have right now and stuff that other people have. So one is, let's talk about things that create discontentment, discontentment creators. So the first one, stuff I feel I must have now. Here's the truth. The specific message you hear most often and more loudly in every day of your life is, you need this and you need it now. That's what any human being hears most often in their life. Four to 6,000 times a day, someone is telling you that you need something and you need it now. 10,000 commercial advertisements. And we're not talking just about TV. We're talking about signs. We're talking about posters. We're talking about text, social media, all these different things. So let's do some math. I'll give you, I'll give you a chart. How many advertisements will you see by the time you're 20? A, 1.5 million, 
B, 15 million, C, 30 million, or D, a gazillion? D is correct, a gazillion advertisements. No, the truth is, this is a low estimate, but you see around 26,280,000 advertisements by the time that you're 20. That's if you don't look at social media, if you don't do all these things, that, that's a low estimate. The truth is, if you did say a gazillion, you're probably more correct. That every day of your life from when you're born until now, if you're over 20, it's double. Somebody is telling you that you need something and you need it now, even if you don't. Think about all the medical commercials. I watched those and I was like, man, am I sick? I've got a headache. I feel, maybe I do need that. Who cares if I'm going to die and bleed out? Like it says I need it. You know, I mean, we, we, we see all these things all now. So what is the purpose of these advertisements? They're telling you that you need it and you need it now. There's no reason, there's no wonder why 70% of us are in debt. Because here's what happens. We live with this for so long that we're not even aware that we're feeling it anymore. This has, has become part of us. It's a normal part of life. Advertisements are a normal part. We actually seek them out. How many of us sought advertisements out during the Super Bowl? Or we YouTubed them? Or we, oh, did you see that commercial? Yeah, maybe it's clever, maybe it's beautiful, maybe it's funny, all those things. But the purpose of it is to get you to buy something, and we are now seeking them out. It's craziness. Dave Ramsey calls it stuffism. Stuffism is a persistent, self-imposed need for stuff that creates a sickness in our lives. Spiritual term for that is materialism. The Bible calls it uh, mammon. Sometimes it's translated stuff, sometimes it's money, but you, you've heard this scripture before. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve both God and mammon. Sometimes it's translated money, but most closely it means stuff. You can't serve both God and stuff. Stuffist. It's a sickness because it damages our lives in many ways. When we were sick, when this sickness, when it happens to us, it, it becomes habitual. Preoccupied with something we feel we need. So we think about it, and we think about it, and we think about it, and we think about it. And that's why. A key symptom of stuffism is nearsightedness. We can only see what's right in front of us, and we're blind to long-term consequences. This is why we take lifelong debt. This is why we pay for things with interest. This is why we take credit cards. This is why we feel like we're safe, because we can always afford whatever we need at certain times. And it's not just our culture and everything that surrounds us that creates this discontentment. The second huge reason is our own sinful hearts. And every one of us, our hearts has a vulnerable to discontentment. Even the smallest thing can trigger discontentment in our lives. And our joy can disappear in a moment. You see, number two is comparison kills contentment. Comparison's like a headshot. It's, it, it just literally takes away your joy. When you start to compare, you, social media is the worst about this. Now, whatever, social media, great. I, have fun with social media. Sell tickets on social media. Do whatever you want with social media. You know, all these things. But so, social media is atrocious when it comes to this comparison trap. Every time we wake up, oh man, how can they get to go to New Zealand and I didn't? Oh, their marriage is so good and their kids are so funny and so beautiful and so happy and oh, they have this and that. And then look, look at the new car that my neighbor down the street bought. All these things and social media creates in us in an instant discontentment. Every day when we open up our phones and we look at Instagram or, or Snapchat or, or Facebook or Twitter, we're instantly discontent. 
And that creates in us in a culture of discontentment. It's more than advertising, though. I mean, we see it in workplaces. We see it in our jobs. Hey, oh, for me, this sounds so silly. I, I see a sermon or I watch a sermon. And I was like, man, that guy killed it. Man, he's a way better preacher than I'll ever be. And once again, I choose, and now I'm discontent, even in the way that I preach and I teach. Even though I know that God has called me to do this, I see a pastor in Dallas or, or in New York, and they're, they're just dropping truth bombs, and I'm like, man. And it's the same for all of us. You see, comparison kills, and I want to show you kind of how this works. Now, let me set this up for you. There's a TED Talk recently done about how monkeys react to comparison. Now, everyone loves monkeys, so you're going to love this video. So he's going to explain it, but I'll kind of set it up. Basically, there's two monkeys, and they give a rock, and they get a cucumber, kind of like Oprah. Everyone gets a cucumber. You know, you get a cucumber, you get a cucumber. And that's how the monkeys are. They get a rock, get a cucumber. Get a rock, get a cucumber. And they love cucumbers. They eat the cucumbers. Cucumbers are great. Everyone loves cucumbers. But what happens in this video is one of the monkeys gets a grape. And so you can go ahead and show it. We laugh, <laughs> but that's how we are. It's crazy. They both had cucumbers for weeks, and then all of a sudden the grapes introduced into the setting, and discontentment arises. <laughs> you see, this illustration reveals something profound about our own peace inside and our own contentment. You see, discontentment is not something that happens to us. It's something we choose. Every single one of us in this room chooses to be content or chooses to be discontent. It's not a fun word, but the reality is it's what we really want. We really do want to be content. We hate the rat race. We, we don't want to keep up with the Joneses. But everything in our life has taught us too. I think Paul and, and God uses this as a gift for us. He teaches us how to have soul rest, to have inner peace, to have inner rest right now. And it comes in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, before I read this, let me explain this to you. Now, Paul, uh, you, know, you know the whole story about Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was killing Christians. Jesus came and kicked him off a horse and said, hey, why are you doing this? You need to come and you need to tell people the gospel. And so he began. He began traveling all around the world. So this is what God told 
Paul to do. He said, hey, here's a specific mission for you to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, he only thought it was for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. Jesus directly revealed it to him, kicked him off the horse. He was an incredibly skilled, goal-oriented man. He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Scripture says. Acts 15 talks about all the places that he went. He went to Jerusalem. He went to Tyre. He went to Sidon. He went all over the world, Asia Minor, all these different places to Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, all these different places. And then all of a sudden, when he's two-thirds done his trip, he gets put in prison. Now, God gave him the specific goal, specific plan, and boom. Then he gets set up and put in prison, and he's, he can have a choice now. And his unrest that's inside him, he says, God, I need to get back to work. Corinth is messing things up. Ephesus is a disaster. He's probably praying these things, and they're good things. They're things that, they, that would get him back to God's will. They're great things. I mean, talk about the context. The, the, talk about where he is. He's in prison, and God has personally asked him to do something. I can't imagine the, the struggle that he has. He has something big that he's got to do. He should feel a certain way. He should be discontent. His dream was stopped, maybe gone forever. He's in prison. Prison, nowhere to go. There's no legal system. There's no nothing that can get him out. It's not like he's going to talk to his lawyer. He could be there for the rest of his life. And he writes this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renew your concerns for me being in prison. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content wherever, the, whatever the circumstances. When you read this in context, being a goal-oriented man, no recourse, no legal system, just struggling, he sits back and says, I can be content here. What does he know that we don't know? What does Paul know that we aren't getting? Because I'm a, I could ask you right now, how many of you are truly content? How many are you truly have rest in your soul? And I've, I would feel like a lot of us would struggle with that. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. You see, the truth of this passage jumps out here. He says that there is not necessarily a relationship between our circumstances and our contentment. Our circumstances do not dictate our contentment. That's what this scripture is revealing. You see, there's power in that. God says you can tell who people are because of their peace and joy. Not when everything is going their way, but when everything falls apart. The thing is, a lot of times we're like, I don't blame you for, for bowing your head, for being angry, for being depressed. You know, I would too if I fill in the blank. But what Paul is arguing here is that we can be content. He says, I've learned the secret. I've learned to detach my contentment from my circumstances. I've learned out of a way to ensure that nothing out there can rob me of my joy. Now, I've learned the secret of what it means to be content. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. See, most of the time, most of the people that read this scripture the first time, they're reading this and they're understanding what he's saying. They're hearing the teachment of contentment, facing things like eating and not eating. 
So it takes us faith to go, I don't need the newest thing to have joy. When they're facing, I could be content even though I don't know where the next meal is going to come from and from my family. And I can trust God to provide. It was interesting, I was on the plane from Miami, it was an hour and a half to the place I went in Haiti. And somebody had a box of Krispy Kreme donuts and they were still hot when they landed. It was like going back 150 years and the, the, the scripture that we're reading and we're talking and processing through is a lot different for their ears than ours. But the foundation of the truth that comes in the scripture is the same. What does it make us to look, what does it mean for us to be content? Let's go back to verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We read this, you know, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed, whether living in plenty or want, and then it says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe you've seen the eye black. It says Philippians 4.13 on it, or you've seen it on a bracelet or a bookmark, and we're like, yes, we can go out there, we're going to win the game because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then we use this and we take this kind of out of context. And we say, hey, I can do all things through Christ strengthen me. And we use this kind of as this genie potion that I can do all these things. But the, what it's saying is I can go into any circumstances, any facet, and not lose my joy and my peace. Whatever comes, I'm at rest inside. The secret is here in the text. The secret of contentment comes when Paul says, I've learned it. Contentment is a muscle you grow by continually choosing it. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. You choose contentment right now because you can choose to obey God and trust God right now. The more you choose to trust God, the more you get to experience God's fulfillment, His promises. You see, when we get frustrated and we lose our peace and our joy, you know, it could be something big, it could be something small, it could be something somebody said or posted or did. You feel like you have a right to lose your peace. And when you lose it, you're reminded, my hope is you're reminded of this truth. I don't have to let my circumstances rob me of my peace and my joy. It's a lie. The cause and effect doesn't matter. This is God's word. It's not cause and effect. You have a choice. If the cause and effect of this passage were true, then this passage would be a lie. You can choose contentment because you can choose to trust God. So how do you get contentment? How do you become content? First, we begin by refusing to blame our circumstances for the lack of peace and joy. There's usually a choice in there somewhere where we can become discontent. There's a choice for us to get frustrated or angry. When we look at Facebook, when we, get, when we get the job, when we get the salary benefits, whatever it is, we can choose in those moments to be discontent. Two is get preoccupied with God's mission for you and what he's already done for you. If you don't do this, I encourage you to do this, just to think in times of stress or frustration or processing, just go through five things that God has done for you in the last 20 years of your life. If you're younger than 20 years, whatever it is. Five things. 
Name five things that God's done in your life. I know the list is probably way longer than that, but just think of five things that God's done for you. If you can't think of five things, you're breathing, you're reading, you're talking, and you have at least somewhere to walk. But just think about what does it mean to say, God, you've put me here for a mission, and look at what you've already done for me. And three is start trusting God. Not your visa. So many of us have put our trust in what we think we could have, what we could have, or hey, my car's gonna break down, no big deal. I don't have to do the hard work and discipline. I could just swipe my credit card. And what we do is we get, we get ourselves into debt. We do these things. Listen, God can be trusted. Money stuff is so tied up in do I trust God? And I know that's hard to hear. Let me give you some examples. Let me ask you a question about trust. Why if a person who has been a Christian for longer than a year, if you're a new believer, I'll give you a pass on this, but why as a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, why is it so difficult for us to talk about finances? Why is it so difficult to talk about tithe, the 10% of your income given to the local church? It doesn't have to be our church, I'm saying to the local church. Well, even though scripture clearly teaches it, we think, why do we think we don't want to do that? There's lots of reasons. Well, clear, scripture isn't clear. I wasn't clear on the scripture before. Uh, I don't really trust what they're doing or this or that. There's a lot of different reasons why we do that. But my question, outside of your understanding of scripture, why do you not do it? Is there any other reason? And I, I've never had the money or it's just hard or Whatever it is, it's all about trust. The truth about not following God's direction on tithing simply is usually about trust. I have a hard time trusting God with this. I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm not saying this to, to freak people out. I'm not, I'm not, we don't want your money. I'm just saying, when you read Scripture and understand the generosity of God, why is it such a struggle for us to be generous? I think God created it this way and made it hard because he wants us to trust him. And we don't. We don't have faith that God can be trusted. That's why the verse says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul is saying, I trust him. He can be trusted. I can be content even when I do not have anything because I trust him. Tithing is ultimately about having faith that God is telling the truth and they can be trusted. Just six verse earlier, it says, and God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. It's Philippians 4, 19. You see, trust God in your knees, not your visa. That's why God says, trust me, and I, when I call you to give. Listen, this verse is to make... Uh, our, tie, our trust is in him. Having contentment inside, put your trust in God's provision. Obey him. Let him show up. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be room enough to store it. I heard a story in the lobby uh, about a young person who, who, who's saying, I'm going to try this. And then God did bless them financially. And I'm not saying that's the norm, 
But I'm saying that she's like, I, the next day, this happened, this happened, this happened, this is that. Now listen, I am not teaching a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that if you do this, God will bless you financially. That nowhere is in scripture. But what I'm saying that test God on this and you will be provided for. In your bulletin, there's a tithe card. And then we have these cards this time of year to help people take the next step. This is what I'm asking you to do. Try it God's way for three months. Just for three months. Give God a chance to show up. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see. Just test him. What would it mean to practice trusting in God in any of these areas? To believe right now that you have a choice to trust God about your contentment. What would it look like? My encouragement for you today is to experience God's goodness and his faithfulness, not just in finances, in every aspect of your life. What does it look like for you if you're single to be content in your singleness? What does it look like for you, those who are married, to be married, content in your marriage? Not just okay, but have rest in your soul. What would it be like to have content in what God has provided for you in your job and not having a job? Whatever it is. Yes, we're talking about finances, but we're actually talking about what it means to be rest for your soul to beat rest. What would it look like for us as a church to be content in Christ? A lot of these other things would fade away. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as you begin to help me process what it means to be content, Lord, that I pray that that out of the overflow of my heart that our congregation will begin to understand what it means to be content in Christ. What it means to be content in what we have and who we are. Not who we think we should be. Lord, you make us by your call what you call us. Help us not to force that on our own, Lord. We trust in Jesus and by doing so, Lord, I pray that all these other wants and desires fade away but rather only the desires we have for you and what you